What if you fixed the World Series? Bet a fat bankroll on the team you knew would tank and got away with it. It happened 100 seasons ago. We'll meet the big brain who pulled off the ultimate fantasy league win next. I remember, he said, when I first hit Broadway, New York was New York and the white way was gay. There were Sherry's and Murray's and Rector's, you know, the Claridge and Churchill's and Delmonico's. Music and laughter, the prices were right. A ten dollar bill meant a wonderful night. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. You know, a lot of the places and names mentioned in that song that we use for the introduction come straight out of the Jazz Age. The song was written in 1925, and we're going to go back to Jazz Age New York and find many of those places serve as backdrops to the amazing gambling mastermind Arnold Rothstein. AR's lust for a sure thing inspired the most audacious and infamous scam in sports history when the Chicago White Sox took a dive on baseball's biggest stage against the Cincinnati Reds. Paying off greedy, crooked players may seem straightforward, but how do you manage to get away with it? To do that, Rothstein spread cash around to everyone from bookies and judges to cops and politicians. And that's only part of his amazing life story. Returning to share his crackerjack historical wisdom is David Petruccia, who brings us Rothstein, the lifetimes and murder of the criminal genius who fixed the 1919 World Series. We last chatted with the award-winning historian about his book, TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy, which, by the way, is now a finalist for the Theodore Roosevelt Association's Award. You can find that interview at historyauthor.com or wherever you're listening now. David Petruccia has written or edited enough best-selling award-winning books to fill a dugout. These include those on pivotal presidential election years, 1920, 1932, 1948, and 1960. You've seen him everywhere from C-SPAN and the History Channel to ESPN and Fox Sports Channel, and on fine radio shows with the likes of my fellow Jersey boy, Joe Piscopo. David is also featured on AMC's Making of the Mob, New York. It's easy to see why he's been called one of the greatest political historians of all time. Follow him at dpetrusia on Twitter and davidpetrusia.com. That last name is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. Okay, now that we've phoned our bookie and bet on the Reds to win us some green, let's find our seats in the grandstand and meet the man who made this sure thing possible, Rothstein. Root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. I'm joined live in person by David Petruccia, 
at New York's Albany Rural Cemetery Chapel, where marking the 190th birthday of President Chester A. Arthur, and we decided we would jump ahead half a century to David's award-winning book, Rothstein, The Lifetimes and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Great to do so. We're in a place steeped in history and a place steeped in early America, and that's what Rothstein's story is. Here's this young man that you wouldn't pick when he was there in his little cradle with his very devout Jewish father to end up being this gambling mastermind. You describe A.R. as having the layers of an onion. When you walk through a cemetery like this, you see people buried from different wars and different eras, and you see the nation growing up when you look at some of those headstones. And that's rather what Arnold Rothstein is like. At the end of your author preface that you added for the paperback edition, you promise readers that, quote, you're about to meet the real Arnold Rothstein. I'm always curious about that moment when an author meets a subject for the first time and decides I'm going to write about him for my next project. You had one that I, I just love that origin story where it's at the old bookstore, right? You pick it up for a dollar. Tell that story. Oh, it's it's worse than that. <laughs> it's 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 in a cardboard box laying in the vestibule of the Albany Public Library near the state capitol. And I'm there on my lunch hour. They have these things for sale for a dollar. And I guess if they don't sell them, they'll throw them away. And among them was a biography of Mayor James J. Walker, the Tammany mayor of New York City. And it wasn't the famous biography by Gene Fowler that became a movie with Bob Hope. Uh, it was a book which was by a fellow named Walsh, very obscure, I'm sure more factual than the Fowler book. And I'm reading it, and I notice this Rothstein gambler fellow keeps appearing over and over again. He's involved in so many things in New York City. And... I, at that time, had come out of being a professional baseball historian. I was one of the few people in, say, not the country, but the world, because who else outside of America would be <laughs> studying baseball history <laughs> and getting paid to do it? Uh, I'd written a bunch of books on baseball, including one which, which won the Casey Award as Best Baseball Book of the Year on Kennesaw Mountain Landis. And I wanted to do not another book on baseball, but a book about New York City in the 1920s. And I faced two problems with that. What portion of that rich history would I take? Wall Street, the Jazz Age, bootlegging, any number of things. And why would a publisher allow this baseball guy to do this book? And Rothstein solved both those riddles because Rothstein was involved in so many things. The subtitle of the book involves the, the, the fellow who fixed the 19 World Series. And there was so much more to him than that. I thought we'd start with the Baseball World Series, the fixed series, the Black Sox, and do as best we could to find out more about this guy because he's obviously not going to leave his state 
papers behind in the Arnold Rothstein <laughs> yeah. Presidential Library and Museum in South Chicago or, you know, anywhere. In fact, he did have papers, but they were largely destroyed by people who whose interest <laughs> yeah. it was to largely destroy them. So I didn't know what I would be able to find out, but he was a public figure as much as a gangland figure could be back then. So you found out a lot about him, and he tended to show up in other people's biographies and autobiographies a lot. So you were able to piece together an incredible kaleidoscope of crime and history and New York City. Because he's gambling, because he's involved in illicit things, he hides so much of himself, and he hides who he is. And I imagine that then when you write the book, you say, well, how much of this is myth? How much did he purposely put out as myth? How much did other people tell stories about him, especially when he dies violently and people are trying to cover things up? It must be hard to dig through that. You were just mentioning that biography and saying what the facts are to meet the real guy because you, you meet him in that dollar bin and then you, you kind of have to track him down from there. It took a while. Yeah. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the easiest task in the world. I speak in the book early on about like peeling away the layers of the onion of Arnold Rothstein. So the outermost layer is the fixer of the World Series. And then below that is the gambler and the loan shark and the fellow who owns the racing stable and um, the drug smuggler at the end of his career, the bootlegger, the uh, importer of the rum runner, the labor racketeer, etc., etc., etc. And he has certain social skills which enable him to be the go-between, which enables him to make all those things work for as long as they do. Uh, so he's the go-to guy between all those rackets and the police force and Tammany Hall and Wall Street and even baseball figures and, and Broadway. He's involved in, in everything. And that is behind a facade of, you know, it's sort of a cliche. I'm just a legitimate businessman. Well, he was a legitimate businessman, too. That was his front. He was involved in real estate. He owned uh, some very nice buildings, like on West 57th Street near to Carnegie Hall on the Upper West Side as well, an actual hotel up there, I think on 72nd Street where he parked one of his girlfriends, his last one, and also in insurance. So he was a loan shark. You took out a loan from him. And, and these were not necessarily with gamblers and stuff like that. He bankrolls the Selwyn Theater on uh, 42nd Street. Major producer, the Selwyn Brothers, put that up. He bankrolls A.B.'s Irish Rose, which is the big hit stage play on Broadway of the 1920s. When he does that, you take out the loan, you pay exorbitant interest, but you also take out an insurance policy from Arnold Rothstein. And that insurance policy is going to have as its beneficiary, Arnold Rothstein. <laughs> and as he would say, you know, you better pay and God help you if you don't. That seemed to be as, about as religious as he got. <laughs> he turns his back on all of that. I think his father, from reading Rothstein, sounds like he was religious enough and devout enough and straight-laced enough for the both of them. And that's a source of friction in his life or in his relationship with his parents and his family, which eventually he moves away from. 
you talk about the onion and we're both looking here from time to time at the cover of Rothstein. He looks like a gentleman there. Nobody with a boater hat on could be bad. or Absolutely not. He looks like such a, a gentleman. Looks like if I did need subway fare, if I did need some money, I would approach him. He seems like a fine fellow. He doesn't, he doesn't have a broken nose and a cauliflower ear or anything. No, he's not one of those these them and those guys <laughs> he's not from the lower east side you know it's well he's from the lower east side right it's like no no he's not from a, a tenement his father is an immigrant but he's a very successful uh, cotton broker middle class as you noted quite religious quite devout he was known as the just he wanted his son his older son to become a rabbi he certainly wanted Arnold to become as religious and devout as as he was. I mean, what what devout father does not want that? But Arnold rebels against that very soon, and that's pretty common. That's pretty common in the Jewish community, and I suspect a lot of immigrant communities as well at, at that time. And America is a great breaker down of traditional society. And you take a look at the big movie hit of the late 1920s, the thing that introduces sound to motion pictures, The Jazz Singer, where Al Jolson plays this fellow whose father wants him to become a cantor at the synagogue. Jakey Rabinowitz becomes Jack Robin, becomes an American, becomes a jazz singer, and, and rebels against thousands of years in tradition. So Rothstein is part of that. And he's also got a chip on his shoulder generally against teachers, against learning. He does have one great academic skill, which is math, which is what all gamblers seem to have. They're kind of mathematical geniuses or idiot savants in that way. They're always rolling around the, the odds and the numbers like that, and, and he is no exception. You mentioned the father and the the idea of him being very devout. And I mentioned that this gentleman here on the cover of Rothstein looks so nice. In fact, he doesn't even drink. Never mind, not being from the Lower East Side, he doesn't drink. He likes milk, he likes cookies, he has a sweet tooth. And in fact, there's a lady in your book who says, no man who just eats milk and cookies could possibly be bad. So it's very similar to what I just said about the boater hat. I don't know if they think he's a nice guy, but that's one of those layers of the onion. That's the outside one that you might first meet when you saw him. Aside from all other reasons not to drink, well, for one thing, it's, well, not drinking is not illegal during Prohibition. All oh. the other things are, and that's what Arnold Rothstein will do. He will do all the illegal things, the, the <laughs> transportation and sale of, of alcoholic beverages. But, you know, one of the problems with alcohol is you're not in control. And I think you want to be in control as much as possible, particularly when you are taking all those risks, and he wants to minimize risks. He does not want to be a fellow taking risks. He doesn't want to really gamble. He wants the sure thing. So he wants to be in control of his own faculties because that's one of the great assets that he has. And so he's not some wild living guy. He is very businesslike in his vices. Before we move on from the childhood AR that grows into this man that fixes the World Series, one of the early indications of his nature is when his father walks in, he finds him standing over his brother's bed, brandishing a knife. So here inside all the milk and cookies is that moment, and you tell it early on here in Rothstein, which is a good reminder of who we're dealing with at the center of that onion, that this is not a safe man to be around. It can be very dangerous. So 
what age was he when that moment happens? And tell us how that develops the young man, how that becomes subordinate, that idea of just random violence, even against your own brother, and that we peel the onion and that man grows up to be in those expensive suits. Often people who are forceful can have a side of them which is, you know, insecure. And Rothstein is insecure very early on with his own family. And the scene you're describing occurs. He's about five years old. Five years old. And his father (laughs) finds him poised over his sleeping younger brother with a knife. Rather than kill the kid, Bertram, Harry Rothstein. And Arnold is very jealous of him early on. Part of the reason is because Arnold's mother had gone off to see her family in San Francisco and had taken the youngest kid with her, which was quite normal back then. But it's not something that you can explain to a five-year-old. And Arnold is very resentful of that. And I suspect later on as well, Arnold became resentful of his father's attitude to that brother because he was the religious brother. He was going to carry on and become the Jewish scholar, the religious fellow which the father would have really appreciated. So that goes on. That other brother, Harry, is not going to survive to adulthood or to much beyond that. But Arnold is still going to be very much estranged from his family. And there's going to be another source of estrangement, which I think we might cover fairly soon. One thing there about that knife incident that occurred to me as you're talking is his father asks him what he's doing. And you think the normal reaction, especially for a five-year-old, would be to hide the knife or to say, oh, nothing, I was I was cutting brownies. He'd come up with some dumb excuse. He doesn't even do that. He just readily confesses. that I he, hate him. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. You write in Rothstein that the 1919 World Series, quote, featured crooked ball players, betrayed fans, gamblers double-crossing players, players double-crossing gamblers, missing witnesses, perjury, stolen confessions, purposely mistaken identities, and cover-ups that would make Tammany proud. Now, all of those things that makes for such a great cover blurb, although you don't use it for that, that, stepping back for me, describes such an intricate plot. And oftentimes, as we all know from reading books that are mysteries or watching Magnum P.I., whatever it might happen to be, the more intricate the plot, the more in danger you are of getting caught somebody talk of having two can keep a secret if one is dead (laughs) right or better if two are dead (laughs) then it definitely stays secret and burn everything before you go so this man that they call the big bankroll you hinted at how he analyzes things how he knows the odds insulates himself that's the amazing part to me is that he looks at the dangers he knows people are flawed he's very sober not just in the alcohol sense but I think he could really size you up and know who he can trust to talk and who he can't. Sort of like Don Corleone when we think of the Godfather. He knows who's going to come. He says, the one who comes to you and says he wants to make peace, he's going to be the one that's betrayed you. So how does he boost his odds of success by using those skills? Well, in terms of the 1919 World Series, he does a number of things. First off, it's not his idea. Finding out whose idea the fix is, I don't think we're ever going to know. And you get a lot of different theories, and I think the best a historian can do, the most responsible thing a historian can do in this case is to present them all. 
because there's an increasing theory now or body of thought that it's the players. It's the players, guys like first baseman Chick Gandel and Eddie Seacott, who are really pushing this from the beginning and approaching the gamblers, which does not fit in with the, shall I say, sob story presented in the movie Eight Men Out or, or Field of Dreams, where these, these poor, grieved fellows are, you know, just sort of Lee Harvey Oswald patsies, you know. It's like, <laughs> no, these guys are in on it from the beginning. But the question is, which gambler comes up with it first? Is it the Boston gambler, Sports Sullivan, who is going to be bankrolled by Arnold Rothstein? Is it going to be a bunch of Midwestern gamblers who will be placing bets through Abe Attell, a former boxing champion who is an agent for Arnold Rothstein in this. Is it Rothstein himself? We, we really don't know which gambler comes up with it first. But we know that Rothstein is in, in the middle of all these things. And why? Even though he doesn't have a history, a big history of baseball gambling, one of the things to think about in a bigger historical picture is 1919 comes after 1918, which means it comes right after World War One. World War One impacts this whole scenario very much. You have a work or fight order in which non-essential industries are being shut down. The racetracks are being shut down during World War One. So the gamblers, who are not exactly volunteering for service in World War One, you know, putting on their doughboy suits have to have something to do during the day they congregate at the ballparks more than they ever have before and they talk to the ball players more than they ever have before and the revenues go down immensely in 1918 the salaries are going to be cut or at least stalled i thought about this i thought about this just yesterday it's like bang and i said this to the wife i said now look what about this factor You're a baseball player. You're maybe a highly paid baseball player. But is it so wonderful in 1918 when the marginal tax rate goes up to 70% to be highly paid? (laughs) But you know what the marginal tax rate is on an illegal bribe? It's zero. (laughs) All of a sudden, that bribe is worth more money than it was before there was an income tax. Yeah, the income tax is news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah, let's let's take that $5,000 or $10,000. But Rothstein, what he's going to do is first bankroll Sports Sullivan to the tune of $80,000. And they are going to promise this to the eight Black Sox players or seven, however you count it, as to who's in on it, who's taking the money through Sports Sullivan. And later on, he's going to work through a couple of, you know, ham and egg sort of gamblers, Sleepy Bill Burns, a former Major League player, and Billy Mahar, yet another former boxer, who were approached by the players to uh, throw the World Series. When the players were already working with Sports Sullivan, we're already going to get $80,000. All of a sudden, they say, we'll fix it for you two guys for $100,000. Rothstein will buy into this eventually because now he can dangle not one but two pots of money in front of the players. And one thing to know about Arnold Rothstein is he wants that money right away from you. 
but he's a very <laughs> slow pay. Right. He's yeah. a very slow pay, which eventually can prove to be a problem for him. Hazardous to your health. Hazardous to your health. <laughs> Players end up getting stiffed, as, as you were reading in that passage. They get double-crossed that way in terms of payments. That's one of the reasons why uh, some of the games – the crooked Black Sox are going to play to win late in that series because they're ticked off. The money has not come in for them at all. Game three, right? They say, hey, we, we were supposed oh, to Oh, not paid. game three. They're still playing to lose, <laughs> but they're, evidently they're, they're messing up even <laughs> playing to lose. But after a while, they will get in back of Eddie Seacott, and they will win a game for him, one of, one of the fixers. They won't play the win for uh, Dickie Carr, who is one of the – honest players on the team the clean socks not part of their their click they wanted to get paid before but i think that they I wanted to that get was, paid yeah, before seacott uh, <laughs> gets paid before he's smart enough to say i want that money right away and he finds ten thousand dollars under his pillow before game one so he's 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 willing to lose a couple games uh, before he realizes that the extra money is not coming in at one point early in what he calls his career as a sportsman, AR competes in a 32-hour pool event. I just love that notion of this super competitive man, and I guess people loved that at the time, and he loved pushing that legend of his skill and his stamina and his endurance, and he was not going to lose. He was going to keep saying another game and keep betting. How does that moment and moments like it evolve into that ultimate scam where he hears these guys maybe willing to throw the series and he says i'm going to get in on that well there's even a more of a backstory to that game than what happens when he first arrives with the with the stick in his hand the pool cue is that early on rothstein associates with people of quality you know people of quality have more money that you can get from them <laughs> okay this is a sound strategy so he's mixing with heirs to various fortunes and, and very high-stakes gamblers in gambling houses. And he's also mixing with people of mental acuity. Before there's an Algonquin roundtable in the 1920s, there's this circle of guys meeting at a, at a hotel and dining and hanging out at Jack's Restaurant. And they're very sharp guys, like Wilson Meisner, who's just Mr. Aphorism. Next to Oscar Wilde, he's Mr. Aphorism. Be careful to the people you meet on the way up because you're going to meet them on the way down. Okay, that's Meisner. <laughs> and that's just the tip of the iceberg of, of the stuff he could come out with. And a lot of writers, columnists, editors, cartoonists. Cartoonists were big business back then for newspapers, editorial cartoonists. And Arnold Rothstein, who is a grade school dropout, is able to hold his own with these people. But there's an edge to him. And he's, he's a little sarcastic, a little too much of a wiseacre, and they determine to knock him down, these guys. So one day they say, oh, this fellow Conway, this rich guy from Philadelphia is coming in. We think he's the best pool player around, and you can't beat him. Rothstein has an ego. So he's goaded into this match, and Conway might very well have beat him. I think the original stakes are like for $500, and Rothstein is behind at first, but then he keeps saying, let's go on and on and on and on. And at the end of these 32 hours, which, by the way, is held at John McGraw's pool hall in Herald Square, John McGraw, the manager of the Giants, this is in 1909, Rothstein is a silent partner in that pool hall. The confluence, again, of baseball 
and gambling and these sort of outcast professions, you know, ball player, gambler, actors, people like that. Rothstein is, is at this pool hall. They play on and on and on. The endurance is simply remarkable. Rothstein probably wins an estimated $4,000 on this match. His pals who wanted to set him up and cut him down a peg, people think they lost $10,000 on the whole game. But aside from the money, this becomes big news. It may be reported in little paragraphs in the newspapers, but the word of mouth about Arnold Rothstein, this big gutsy guy, spreads through all the gambling and showbiz and high living precincts in Manhattan. And that's, you know, you can't beat that kind of advertising. (laughs) You can't buy that kind of publicity, and especially when you consider pool. You don't think of it as athletic in the way baseball is, but he's got to be on his feet. He has to be a person of skill. And we all know you talked about alcohol. That'll dull your skills, dull your judgment making, dull your reaction time. He has to be awake. I can't imagine 24, much less 32, or even at the end of a day when you're tired, you've been up 10 hours and you're trying to make the exact shot and he can stop. They're begging him to stop. And he just keeps going. He's a driven guy. Yeah, he's he really not going to lose. He just isn't going to lose. And yet, that's not why he fixes the series, as you said. It's because he doesn't want to have to be gambling. He wants to find that sure thing. And if this can be a sure thing, then, hey, I can yeah. make money off it. So why why do people like Sports Sullivan and Sleepy Bill Burns and Billy Maharg and these Midwestern guys come to him? Why don't they fix it on their own? Because, I mean, they know the players. Arnold doesn't really know the players uh, involved on the White Sox. And I, I don't think he'd be schmoozing with them in any case. The reason they come to him is, well, you need $80,000 or $100,000 or $180,000 to dangle before the players. But so what? So you've, you've done that, but you also have to have money to bet on the series. You know, once Sport Sullivan in Boston has put up $80,000 in real American dollars back then in gold, you wouldn't have any money to bet. So these guys need the money to bet. They need a guy who is going to not only he's so Rothstein can not only put up the money to bribe the players, he has the money, the big bankroll to put on the series himself. We're never going to know exactly how much he bets because, again, there's no records there. Usually there's a figure of $270,000 put forward, which really wouldn't be a record for him. You know, he would win $300,000 or more or lose $300,000 on a a single horse race. So this is not his biggest scam at all. That's why when he dies and the papers run stories on his life and his obituary, the World Series fix is barely mentioned. (laughs) He had so much more. Well, there's the onion again. There's so much more that you would make copy on that that seemed to be almost besides the point, especially since... He does take steps to keep his fingerprints off them. And I thought about it in 2019, and we couldn't imagine something someone says at some point in your book, in Rothstein, where they say, well, it's dead and buried with him. Attell, is that the name? I'm trying to remember the name. Abe Attell. Yeah. And he says, well, that was buried. That kind of fixing was buried with Rothstein. And today, you wouldn't be able to, first of all, the players much better paid, and, and they really, that's their life. And they wouldn't take the bribes. But I watch sometimes soccer when I'm at the bar getting, I guess you'd say, my skills dulled, 
every now and then waiting for a football game to come on. They'll have a soccer game on and they'll have ads basically telling their fans this game is not fixed. And the reason they have to tell you that is because their games are often fixed. And I thought we just take for granted that what happens on any given Sunday or a hockey game or in the World Series on a big stage is going to be honest. And yet here we have a fixed game and people don't walk away from the national pastime. You have this phrase that we still use today that you have in Rothstein, say it ain't so Joe. And it's so pleading. You don't want to see your icons knock down a peg. You you invest everything in sports and the idea is they don't let you down. You can't invest everything in a politician or even in a marriage often. Somebody's going to let you down. We know what the divorce rate is. But sports, they were counting on them and these guys let them down. And I wondered how close it came to people just saying, the heck with baseball. Well, maybe we will go follow soccer or some other sport. How do they rebound from that? You keep seeing in those days the reference to baseball as a clean sport, an honest sport where there wouldn't be such fixes. And it wasn't true. There had been gambling in baseball and fixes going back into the 19th century. There was a big scandal involving Louisville, where players were banned in the 1870s. There was, a, there was an umpire who was thrown out. There were rumors of fixes throughout the World Series. By the way, you also see references at that time, the World Series is called something else. It's called the World's Series. Huh, yeah. Language changes, yeah. and we don't even know when it does or, or, or how. And so there are these rumors of fixes in the World Series in, say, 1911, 1914. One of the Midwestern gamblers was trying to fix the 1918 World Series, and there were rumors of that. doesn't appear that that has occurred or did occur. So people thought it was clean. And in 1918, one of the great crooks in baseball history who is banned as a part of the Black Sox scandal, but he's not hes not a White Sox player. He's a New York Giants player at that time. His name is Hal Chase, Prince Hal Chase. You know, we don't have any film of him playing, but as a fielder, he must have been better. He was a first baseman. Must have been better than Keith Hernandez. I never saw anyone better than Hernandez at hmm. first. Chase might have been better, but he was so crooked. And, and he was so skillful, he could, you know, make that play. He could not make that play and look graceful not making the play. And still, the base runner would be safe. Okay, he was really good at that. And he fixed a lot of games. He was with Cincinnati in 1918. Christy Mathewson was the manager. And they were going to bring charges against him. And nothing happened. You get all these rumors and nothing would happen in baseball. There wouldn't be any investigation of it so that it, everything looked clean, but it wasn't. And the rumors, people in baseball would hear these rumors and they'd know, well, maybe nothing's going to happen to Shoeless Joe Jackson. Maybe this will happen again. It'll just get passed over. We'll go on to another season. But what happens to rescue baseball from people thinking it's going to be like boxing or horse racing, some fixed thing, is one, Babe Ruth, the lively ball era where baseball changes radically from a pitcher's and fielder's game into a big home run sort of game and an exciting personality game, you know, the golden age of sports, and, and no one's more golden than the Babe. And secondly, 
Kennesaw Mountain Landis. There's been a power struggle for the ruling of baseball. Van Johnson, the American League president, has been the big dog, the guy running everything. His day is over. The magnates of baseball choose to put in Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who had was a high-profile judge. He had fined Standard Oil back in 1907, $26 million. John D. Rockefeller, $26 million, had fought the IWW, the radicals, the socialists about their opposition to World War One, and a real box office judge, if there is such a thing. So they put him in charge of baseball, and he bans all the Black Sox when they are acquitted of fixing the World Series by a Chicago jury, which is another story, and says that no player who has worked to fix a game, taken money, sat in on meetings, is ever going to play baseball again. And when he does that, the fixing stops, and baseball really is a a clean sport forever and ever, or until steroids. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for the seventh inning stretch with David Petrusha about his book, Rothstein, the lifetimes and murder of the criminal genius who fixed the 1919 World Series. You can follow him at dpetrusia on Twitter or davidpetrusia.com. Publishers Weekly calls Rothstein strong investigative journalism and says that the book sweeps readers into the seedy world of Tammany Hall politics, violent mobsters, dirty cops, and paid-off judges. Who wouldn't want to read a book about those things from the safety of our home? David, we tend to look back at the Roaring Twenties as this era of vice and corruption, and then it just ends with the repeal of Prohibition. Everyone can just have a drink and relax. I guess Arnold Rothstein would have just had a double shot of milk there at the end of Prohibition. But we move on. Then there's more historical things of interest to keep our minds. There's the Great Depression and the misery of that, and then World War II before you know it. I interviewed Bob Batchelor about his book, about another figure from the Jazz Age, another man who's a possible inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald, by the way, and The Great Gatsby, which we'll get to in a moment. He's the author of The Bourbon King, The Life and Crimes of George Remus, Prohibition's Evil Genius. He had a question for you along those lines about the changing times. Bob said that the big brain, since he had such an immediate and long-lasting impact on New York City in the 1920s, since his legend continued even after his death, what remnants of that legacy today, since we don't have fixing anymore, since we don't have the speakeasies, what part of Arnold Rothstein's New York City endures to this day? Well, they repealed prohibition, but they didn't repeal original sin. So Vice marches on. A lineal descendant, well, it's everywhere now. Because of Meyer Lansky, who was a protege of Arnold Rothstein, and Rothstein said, don't cut corners on these gambling joints you're running. Don't cheat the customers. Keep them coming back. Because what keeps coming back? When you hear the news of the person who bought the lottery ticket at the corner, that gets everyone ginned up again to buy more lottery tickets because it could be you, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Lansky follows the Rothstein model in Havana, and then more to the point nowadays in Las Vegas, 
Las Vegas endures, and now you've got casinos in every podunk town in America. We still have that as an Arnold Rothstein legacy. Rothstein was running his own casinos. He had one and gambling houses. He had one in outside Saratoga Springs, very profitable. He had one on Long Island. He had gambling houses before that. Had one on West 46th Street in New York City, which really cemented his fortune early on in the teens. But also a much more pernicious legacy is that in the mid-1920s, he starts seriously bankrolling the drug traffic and the importation of drugs into America, both from Europe and from the Orient. He has one of his legitimate businesses again is importing antiques from the Orient, antiques from Europe. And guess what comes in those packing crates besides antiques? Drugs. Yes. <laughs> Heroin, I suppose, all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And they weren't checking your customers. And they were, no, and there were just millions and millions of dollars at that point were being involved. And what you see uh, following his death, where, where the, the authorities do pick up the threads of what he had left behind, is there's a series of incredibly high-profile, big-money drug raids uh, throughout the New York City area. And if he started sampling the merchandise, unlike his resisting of alcohol, that would have dulled him and made him a little careless, too. But we don't know. If yeah, he... I, don't, I don't know if he, had, he would have done that or not. But he, he certainly, uh, his luck starts to, to run out at the end and where things, you know, used to work for him. All, when you're hot, you're hot. And when you're not, you're not. I like that idea you were saying about keep the gambling house honest. He wouldn't want you to say you'd been cheated. There was, or, there's a bunch of those stories. No, or mugged on the, in the alley on yeah. the way out. Uh, uh, yeah, uh. Water down liquor. There's a guy who says I'm, he's, he's upset about his run of bad luck and says, this place is crooked. And he says, I'll, I'll bet it all for you on a flip of a coin. A hush is going to fall around across that room. And for him, if he'd lost, which, which he doesn't, it would be worth it because he doesn't want that negative publicity. He had that real ear for knowing if you're a big spender, for instance, in a casino, they, they tried to, I think it was the Atlantis down in Atlantic City, and I read an article on it once, and they said they pitched it as being affordable for you, and it was, uh, was going to be sort of a stripped-down version of, of a casino. And they said, nobody wants to think that. When you go, you want to feel like a high <laughs> roller, right? Every room should feel like a high roller room if you're there. Nobody wants to go to the discount play a no, casino no. to play you, if you want an honest bookie and you want to feel like like you're a player yeah when i was a kid there were many a bookie around the neighborhood and they were all remarkably honest people i never heard of a bookie stiffing anyone at all and the other thing that would occur is you know people would bet their 25 cent bet straight as they say on the number and box hit of a dime and if you won, what did you do? You tipped the bookie because then you were a big shot. You were a winner. <laughs> yeah. He never tipped you when he won. <laughs> it's like throwing the chip down at the blackjack table. You yeah. Know, you, you tip him. What would one of our conversations be without a TR mention? But it's making me think of when he becomes one of the police commissioners of New York City, that board of four, and he sends the cops out, trace down vice, go, I want you to get these bookies off the street, all manners of vice. And that cop grabs a fellow he sees under a street lamp 
who's writing numbers in a book and he, he's like, well, this guy's a bookmaker and he drags this little bespeckled fellow up down and he finally gets in there and he explains, I'm a math teacher. What he, <laughs> he saw him writing all these figures and thought, aha, he must be running numbers. He, he drags him down to the precinct. Many of the, well, the, the bookmakers at the tracks were, again, the, that mathematical facility. It would be all in their brains, all in their brains. Wow. Yeah, so like you said, nothing written down for the presidential library. Yeah. And today, we talked about the legacy. The legalized sports gambling has just come to New Jersey. I think in the first year, it beat out Las Vegas. People will drive across the George Washington Bridge or pop through the Lincoln Tunnel just to sit there with their app and make their bet. And it's easy to look back, I guess, on the 20s in Rothstein and say, well, he was paying off these government officials. How terrible. Well, today, the government just decided to cut, <laughs> cut the out open. the Rothsteins. Right. You know, they're they're going to just get their dollar from our vice all on their own. So it's gone mainstream now. They discovered they can make their cut. That's why the even the uh, NFL, they'll, they're happy to have Fantasy League now because they, they figure, oh, people are more watching and there's more money. And so they stopped trying to kill off Fantasy Leagues, and they really embrace it now. It's changed the way it goes, and same with sports betting. I received an email the other day from a real expert on not only sports gambling today, but the history of it. And he was pointing out a merger of two of these big sports gambling outfits. And that one of the partners, shareholders in one of them, with an option to buy much more, is Fox Broadcasting. Yeah. Who will be broadcasting the World Series in 2022. So you've got a very, very... Uh, on Kennesaw Mountain Landis connection between gambling and, and baseball directly right now. And we'll see how all that plays out. There used to be, you know, there used to be gambler sections in these in these ballparks. Will there be like kiosks? <laughs> yeah, you can bet at, on it. At the park yeah. where you can just say, well, this is going to happen in this inning or to score. You know, I don't know. It's impressive dedication to the honesty of these major sports that – if you do speculate on those things, people don't really take it far. Nobody ever says, well, let's appoint a special prosecutor or somebody to go and investigate. For instance, the Vegas Golden Knights, they were an expansion team. They went all the way to the NHL finals for the Stanley Cup, and the odds for them had been at the beginning of the season to win the Stanley Cup. They, they hadn't played a game for crying out loud. They didn't even know what their mascot was going to be. There were stories in the Washington Post about what a bath the people that were taking the action for the finals would be. But nobody ever said, well, I bet the reason that they lost is just because the bookies would lose too much. I'm sure some of them were definitely sitting there in Vegas praying that they wouldn't because it would have been a mountain of money. But we have managed to drive that out of the sport. So you do feel like even though we all complain about an umpire or about a referee's call or say that they should throw a flag in a play that they don't, I think we all know not really based on anything other than well, we're salaries momentarily are so high ticked. now. Yeah, the, could, probably yeah. the weak, the weakest point, and I would assume that baseball and the other sports are smart enough to know that is the umpiring and the referees. Those are guys who can make a real difference, and uh, that's just the way he saw that pitch. You know, who yeah. knows? <laughs> There's bad calls all the time. It doesn't matter that they're dishonest, but you you want to see if that umpire is in debt what what he's doing on the road what bad habits he has and you know some of them are just removed and you don't know why so eternal vigilance is the price of everything i mentioned f scott fitzgerald and he only met arnold rothstein once 
how much does the man we meet in Rothstein inspire Meyer Wolfsheim in The Great Gatsby? Well, he's, um, Rothstein has gotten a bit wrong in, in The Great Gatsby. He's not quite the uncouth fellow with human teeth as cufflinks <laughs> that Fitzgerald portrays him to be. But he does mention specifically in the novel that this is he's a smart man, old boy. He fixed the World Series. Right. And then they say, why? Why? Well, how could he get away with that? And it's like, because he's a smart man, old boy. And, and Rothstein really is. Question is, why? What? Why did he get away with it? And because he, again, like an onion, there are the layers and there are the layers of his personality and his business interest. And there's a layer of how you fix a World Series. Arnold Rothstein is never going to talk to a player directly. There's going to be people he talks to who talk to players directly, but not him. And those people, these middlemen like Sports Sullivan and Abatel, they simply disappear in one form or another from the legal proceedings. <laughs> You write evidence had a way of disappearing around Arnold Rothstein. And I guess if a person got to, in fact, that does happen in Rothstein, people will tend to disappear in that business or that world where you just walk out of your apartment one day and, oh, wow, it's raining, but it's raining bullets. So that kind of thing happens. And I don't know that he sweats it during that, but how close does he get to or how close does an honest cop, an honest prosecutor, an honest judge get to tying him into this i guess what today we call racketeering you mean with the series yeah his name is mentioned by sleepy bill burns and billy maharg because they had met with him they originally want to meet with him at the racetrack or in rothstein's office and rothstein won't meet with them instead rothstein meets with them and he knows why they're coming to get the money to fix the world series he meets them in the middle of the dining room at the biggest hotel in Times Square, the Hotel Astor. He listens to them and then blows up very visibly and says, I want no part of this fix. He has, coincidentally, at dinner with him, a former New York City police officer <laughs> and also rumored a judge. So he's got witnesses who are going to be able to testify, I turned the fix down. Now, later on, he's going to work through these guys in, in a back door but these are the only fellows who are willing to testify against him and they do although they're you know they're even they're not sure where the money came from sports sullivan is made to just disappear he's put off on like a boat to europe or somewhere during all these uh, legal proceedings he's never he's never brought to trial a Battelle, the situation is far more interesting for a while Rothstein and Rothstein's attorney, a guy named Bill Fallon, sends Attell to Montreal, but then they bring him back. And he's in New York. He's walking through Times Square one day. All of a sudden, he's arrested by New York City police officers to be extradited to Chicago. And it's a setup. They know that he's going to be walking through there, and he's hauled before a magistrate, Attell is. And a witness comes in from Chicago who had bet with Attell and is a complainant in this case. And the judge says, is this the man that you bet with? Is this Abe Attell? And the witness says, no, Your Honor, this is a different Abe Attell. 
Abe Attell had been a, a boxing <laughs> champion. He was well known. Okay. And this is a complete lie and a perjury, but it is a paid for lie and perjury. And this is the type of, of stunts that Rothstein's attorney, Bill Fallon, is capable of. When Rothstein goes and appears before the grand jury in Chicago, they make up this this story that he's assaulted by newspaper reporters and photographers, and he's the aggrieved party. With Fallon, you're always, his defendant is always the aggrieved party, and he makes up these ridiculous stories like, you know, this is not the same Abe Attell. When Fallon, there are charges of jury tampering brought against him. He puts William Randolph Hearst on trial because the charges had come in in a Hearst paper and says that Hearst has it against him because he knows that Hearst had twins by Marion Davies. This is a complete <laughs> lie. OK, this is just made up. And, and so they will make stuff up. The enduring myth of the Black Sox case is that Charles Comiskey, the owner of the Black Sox, was a cheapskate and was cheating the Black Sox on bonuses and underpaying them. And we now know, we have the records in the last 20 years, since I've written Rothstein, people have really dug into this, and it's just not true. But this story gets peddled originally in the defense of the Black Sox in their trial. And Fallon wasn't in the courtroom. But this thing of putting somebody else on trial when your guys are guilty as hell... That's a Fallon stunt. And who's paying Fallon for all of this? It's Rothstein. I find it amazing, the mechanics of it. Never mind the morality. Oh, it's a corkscrew situation. The way he figures it out. And as someone who's interested in politics and into it, I look at those things and the way that he could have been a politician, but he'd rather buy the politician. He could have been a a man in the press, but he'd rather. He could have been a Wall Street broker. He was offered 25 grand in the teens to go over and do that. And it's like, ah, that's not interesting to me. (laughs) Not Uh, as exciting. One of the things I do, I probably started with Rothstein when I do a book is to create a chronology of events so I can keep things straight. Keeping things straight with Rothstein was very hard. And you would see, okay, he's involved in this bootlegging here and beating someone up there, this and that, and then he's fixing the World Series that afternoon. And how does he keep it straight? How does his emotions not just go, his nerves are completely frayed at this? You know, I have to give, I have to talk to you this afternoon and give a talk on Chester Arthur the same day. And I'm like, oh, and how does he do six crooked things before lunch? He keeps it all straight. And he, he keeps it all straight. The milk must have helped his stomach. It, he, I think. I think so. Yes. Yeah. It's crazy. and bad teeth. Bad teeth though. From, from the all sugar. the cake. Yeah. yeah. From all the cake and all the sweets and everything. I love that thing with the press. That's something that I mean. He manipulates them right there. It's straight out of Chicago, out of the play Chicago. And he, oh gosh, how could you treat me like this? I. And again, that his I'm look works for him. Yes, but he looks like a look gentleman. You could find him standing over your bed with a knife, and you still your your instinct, your brain, your subconscious is going to say, "This guy, maybe, maybe he's a broker, maybe he's a dentist." I wouldn't think that he he's really going to use that knife on me, but he would, and he he knows that he knows what his own skin looks like, and he sees all of those angles. I just found that amazing. It's somebody that is good to read about in history. But I think if he was alive today and if he'd really turned his mind, his talents to criminal things, 
that it would have been a real tough person to deal with because how would you catch somebody like that who's a lawyer who's all, all these things wrapped into one in his mind i mean he's not he's not a lawyer but leaves grade school and he has all of these natural skills and the ability to assess the situation so well maybe a general he would have been he could have been so many things and he decides to just put it to get in the big pot get in the big score over and over again yeah it's the value of networking i think and the fact that he's able to be the bridge between people. I think he's able to be the bridge between people because one of his first jobs, his first job is he goes to Chicago when he's a young man and he's, he's selling cloth or something and he, he loses all of his money on the road. But he's a salesman. Right after that, he's also works selling cigars to cigar stores. So he's a salesman you know, this is going to work for you. You know, don't do it for me, but this is going to work for you. This <laughs> this bribe will work for you yeah. and for your family. <laughs> you owe it to this. This is the finest bribe you, yeah. can, you can get. It's amazing. The stories again and again of him. You picture gambling. You picture the jazz age. You picture a certain kind of person. And that's why uh, for a long period, we only had caricatures of those guys. The guys, Star Trek, a piece of the action. Some of these people that are just two-dimensional and they're just as you said the d's dem and does and here's a man who wow you're reading rothstein and i'm trying to keep up with him i'm, I'm glad you did the timeline work so i didn't have to because then <laughs> he does have a wife yeah that's a whole story here part well, of his yeah. biography. and then you know as if that's not enough he decides he's going to have a mistress he's going to be several keep, yeah. yeah keeping his wife happy and try to well i guess that's not too much of a concern but at least keep her from making him unhappy maybe that's a better way to yeah put he it, wanted to keep you know? the marriage together it's very interesting that towards the end of his life as he's trying to keep the marriage together he consults a early psychologist a fellow named i think john b watson he's not the dr watson of sherlock holmes he's a different <laughs> dr watson who in fact is the grandfather of marriott hartley who huh. listeners may recall if not the name the commercial she did for i think polaroid with james garner yeah and they were they they, they people thought they were mr and mrs garner but they weren't but the, so rothstein would go in to this shrink with his wife and you know sort of like pre um, sopranos, sopranos. Yeah. uh so he's he's very modern in that sense he's conflicted he's like you know g officer krupke <laughs> you know well he's a guy who because he has that analytical skill that's the thing you eventually he's going to even though his life is so busy and maybe that's why he kept it so busy eventually you're going to turn that analytical mind to yourself and i think maybe that's part of the reason why then he says well boy i do have this thing i, I can't imagine being inside his mind i think if you're writing this as a novel to get inside his head would be a very noisy chaotic place to try to put words in it because maybe not chaotic maybe it would just be organized uh, chaos or it, it would just be very busy you know like i guess when you do walk onto the stock exchange all of those people running in different directions to me from the outside it looks like this can't possibly work why don't they use computers? Why Why are these people running? How do they know? There's all these numbers flashing on the board going up and down, and yet it's organized. It's the only way they can do it. And so I think maybe that's what the inside of it's a, It's a different like. skill. I have the skill of being able to sort this stuff out in, in a book, but balancing my checkbook, forget about it. <laughs> I lost you just driving here across the cemetery, so I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I said there was no way I could stop and ask anyone. I didn't think, sorry if you're lost, do you know where the chapel is? So I just uh, had to find, find the map <laughs> find my way here. I mentioned about using him as a fictionalized example, Arnold Rothstein, 
Listeners may be familiar with the 1988 film that you mentioned, Eight Men Out, or Michael Stuhlbarg's depiction in HBO's Boardwalk Empire. It's one thing to ask what you thought of those performances. We get an idea from listening to you and from reading Rothstein, but somebody whose entire life and legend and persona was very carefully crafted. And you've mentioned a few of those things. There are many more in the book that he planted these little seeds of doubt and these little stories like the press ambush, oh my gosh, that that didn't happen. And you'll still read about these sometimes. And so it's no fault to people who are portraying them to know exactly what really happened because he kept that in the shadows. He wanted to keep his fingerprints off it and be the Oz behind the curtain. So how much of these big screen examples, big screen depictions of Arnold Rothstein are real? How much of it is a good performance, good fiction, but maybe not the real man? What do you think of those portrayals of the Black Sox scandal mastermind? I wasn't crazy about Michael Lerner playing Rothstein in Eight Men Out. Physically, the type was wrong. And I, I write in a footnote in there that uh, Lerner seemed like an actor who was always sweating. I, uh, he's, he's, I think, the studio executive in Barton Fink. And uh, and I don't think Rothstein never sweat. I mean, he's just like more, it, right? you know, it might be a bit curt as Lerner was in Eight Men Out. But I, I don't I don't think it seemed quite right. And, of course, a lot of the uh, a lot of just about so many, I, I watched both because I participated in a symposium in Chicago on the 100th anniversary of the Black Sox recently. And it was really about the legacy of the Black Sox. So it's like, gee, I think I better watch both movies again. And I was quite stunned at just how inaccurate Eight Men Out was. I mean, really just over and over and over and over again. So a lot of the details regarding Rothstein and just about everyone else were hitting false notes for me, even even before the stuff which has come out since that was made, since my books were were written. In terms of Boardwalk Empire, I'm going to have to do a very gangsterish thing and take the fifth. <laughs> uh, although it's it's not really the fifth, it's just a refusal to testify or an inability, really an inability to testify because I've never seen the show. I don't have HBO. And I also kind of wary about historical <laughs> historical movies because they'll put things in your brain and they'll stick in your brain and you won't know where they came from and you think that they're true and movies are yeah. damn near never true. Yeah. But when Boardwalk Empire was in development, I received a communication from Michael Stuhlbarg, who was the fellow who ended up playing Rothstein. And he said, I've read your Rothstein. Would you care to have lunch or get together someday and we can discuss, you know, how I should be playing him? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. But at, at that moment in time, uh, now Rothstein has been optioned three or four times for motion pictures and there's a shopping agreement. And right now the option agreement is like this close to being signed for a stage presentation. Okay, so it's it's been a popular uh, topic back on Broadway. Back on Broadway, cool. oh, probably off Broadway, because yeah. what we're originally talking about now is a one-man show, which could be a musical, believe it or not. Huh. Yeah, wild. So I've been uh, that. That'll be intriguing. We'll see if that happens with with an option. We'll see if it happens. So my agent said, 
you've got this option out with someone else. Yeah, I don't think you should be talking to somebody who hasn't optioned your book in this case. And so it's like I got back to Stuhl Bargain. I said, I'd be happy to have lunch with you. The only thing is, the only thing we can't discuss is Arnold Rothstein. And for some reason, he didn't want to talk to me, <laughs> which is perfectly understandable. I like that notion, too. Also, it's not quite history. It's only a few years ago that this show was on. And I felt the same watching it. I love the performances. And I'm not going to write about the Jazz Age, so I was safe. But when I was writing about Churchill, I didn't want to watch any of the portrayals. And people would say, but they're so great. And oh, that other, last movie drove me but, nuts. Yeah. <laughs> other than young Churchill. Uh, young Churchill, I, I thought, was was really well done. And that was the only role for that actor, which is it makes it even more singular and, and kind of odd. Because to me, it's just, if you know the age, obviously you know Rothstein well, it has to be right on. Otherwise, you're watching it and you're saying, this is just watching somebody dressed up as the person. You mean having the, you you mean the the right physical age to play him? Well, just, you know, it's not him. And for me, it's just my personal thing. I have a hard time. I have this with Ed Harris, who I was chagrined to discover he was born from Tenafly, went to Tenafly High School. So that's a town right next to the two towns where I grew up, right next to the town where I was born. And so I said, well, I have to like him now. He's he's from New Jersey. But every time I see him in a movie, I say, well, there's Ed Harris doing that. It's suspension of disbelief, I guess I have a little challenge with. And I think when you look at historical figures, like in this, I'm looking at the fellow in Boardwalk Empire. And you don't need HBO, by the way. I think it's on Amazon Prime if you have okay. that. But anyway, I'm saying... Well, that guy's not acting very Warren G. Hardy, you know. <laughs> but I felt like it has. She's not. Doesn't look like Nan Britton at all. She wasn't a crazy woman. No. Doesn't make it not enjoyable. There was a, a movie about the Cristeros in Mexico in the 1920s. Where the Catholic Church was being seriously prosecuted. It was a you know semi Bolshevik revolution at some point after a while in Mexico. They were closing down all the churches and killing the priests. Bad stuff. And they, I haven't seen the whole movie, but I've seen a clip where they have some guy playing Calvin Coolidge. It's like, it's like, I mean, seriously bad casting. So <laughs> casting is, is um, my 1920 book, The Year of the Six Presidents, has been optioned and is being developed by Charlie Mathau, Warren Mathau's son. And I think one of the difficulties with bringing that to the screen, and hopefully they'll, he'll have a great casting uh, director, is that you know what these people look like. If you don't know what, and the bulk of people don't know what Nucky or Arnold Rothstein or you know any of these characters look like, Dutch Schultz, but you damn know well what Franklin Roosevelt or Theodore Roosevelt <laughs> looks like. You, you may be a little hazy on Warren Harding, but you, you've got to get, like you, you've gotta get those guys right. <laughs> and that, that can be very hard. As to what Dan Britton looks like, I don't know. You know, I, I, I know, but it's like no one else is. I said he looked like a president. That's he does look like a president. That's why they said That's like they Chester got Arthur right. looks like a president. Yeah. That's why they said they elected him because he looked like a president. And you mentioned that about who plays who. Brian Keith, the late Brian Keith, yeah. played, played both Theodore Roosevelt and William McKinley in two movies for John Millis. That, that, well, you can't, can't have two guys who oh, look the less wind alike. Oh, the, the wind and the lion yeah. is such historical yeah. garbage. Well, the Rough Riders is good right up till the very end, and he has to put Germans in. And if you listen to his commentary, they say, were, were there Germans there with the Cubans shooting down on, on Theodore Roosevelt? And he says, 
well, you know, you had to put the Nazis in the movie. And then he goes, <laughs> oh, the Germans. I mean, the Germans. No, there were no Germans there. But he sticks that in. And they also call it World War One, when, of course, they wouldn't have called it. Well, World at the War end of the Wild Bunch, so. you've got Germans, uh, <laughs> you know, aiding the bad Mexicans. <laughs> they always slip them in there. All-purpose villains. Yeah, the young film buff in Northern Exposure. A German man comes through, a German young young guy, and he says, "What's it like to be the bad guy all the time?" <laughs> you know, he asks him, and he says, "Oh, it, it doesn't do, it doesn't bother me. It's okay." But we hear that accent, you hear it on the streets of New York, and you start to think, "Oh, you know," because this is what movies do to us, I guess. It starts oh, yeah. to get in your mind. You know, yeah. it's it's not very fair. I always used to get like in the seventies, staying at the Hotel Edison in Manhattan, getting in the elevator with Germans and. Something would kick in, some racial memory in me, and I'd be getting very nervous. Also, they're much taller than I am. <laughs> <laughs> the Polish background, I guess, is going to yeah. be something that'll make you think, this is it. This is one of the things, I guess, that spoke to me a little about Rothstein that you mentioned before about becoming Americanized. And I'm picturing Rothstein as being a strawberry or whatever he might have been dropped into that blender that is the American melting pot before we can melt or being dropped it, into it this takes a, It takes a while to feel you're part of the club. Now, you can overstate, and I think it is overstated, the discrimination or whatever. But you still, you're, you're still not sure where you fit in when i got engaged to my wife which was in 1989 my mother hadn't met my fiance at that point and i was explaining to her just very maiden name bassford didn't end this in a ski okay and my mother asked is she an american she didn't mean whether she was a foreigner or an immigrant or anything like that. The implication was that somehow, even though my ancestors had first come over in the 1890s, that we still weren't in the same league as the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, it takes a while. It takes a while. The immigrant experience is interesting. It's interesting not only for the people who come here, and the shock of people who are here, it's also a shock to the people they leave behind. We never we never think about them as part of the immigrant experience. But what is the heartbreak of the people in the village in Anatolia or Galicia or Sicily or Mexico or Guatemala when all your relatives and friends have left? Yeah, and you'll never see them again. Yeah. There's no way to keep in touch even if you wanted to. Yeah. That's why this story, I find, to bring it back to Rothstein, such an American story. And I love that period of bringing somebody in and then you're sitting there one day and you say, Dad, this is the girl I'm going to marry. And he's already has this stressful relationship. And speaking he, of uh, <laughs> such, situ- such situations. And he says something very wise and that I think anyone would want their father to say to him. He, he doesn't throw this woman out in her ear. He doesn't do any of the stereotypical movie things we no. might picture. He says, you know, obviously he can't give him his blessing, he says, but, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't wish them ill and march them out. And in a way, I think of all the bets that Rothstein makes in his life, he's ready for a fight there. And I think his father, I don't know if he was, he, he I think he wanted a fight as I'm reading the book, as I read in Rothstein, but his father diffused it. And in a way, almost beat him in that little way where he didn't. Yeah, he he would have been happier, I think, if he just got thrown out on his butt and said, "See, this is why I never want to come here again." But that that's not how it works out. 
So that that's kind of a nice thing. And, and yeah. as I said, Rothstein, the book doesn't always take you right where you think you're going to go. He he works at right angles to things. It, it's he, always he also a helps his father out financially later in in life, and he's he's very close to at least one of his brothers. Maybe I think two of them surviving brothers. Yeah. So even though he's estranged from his family, you know, there's it's not a clean break. He's complex. Yeah, he just doesn't fit. It would have been great to just be one of those Jewish kids on the Lower East Side. He's also, live his life, he, he's, he's also, not. you know, where where does he live most of his life? I mean, he he does, like I say, uh, when his marriage is breaking up, he ends up with his that uh, his mistress on West Seventy Second Street in the hotel he owned. But when he's married, and for the bulk of his successful life. He's living not on the Upper West Side, even. He's on the Upper East Side. I mean, how hoity-toity is that on Central Park, you know, East, yeah. <laughs> Fifth Avenue? Theodore Roosevelt's sister, Bammy, is there. I mean, everybody, yeah, a lot of people yeah. were there. That, that was, was that was the Republican area. They, yeah, the Silk Stocking District. Yeah, that's a good address to have. Well, I'll ask you one final question. And that is probably going to come as no surprise to people who have been listening. But that's that as I read Rothstein, I never felt as if I was thinking, hurry up and get to the World Series. I don't want to read about his childhood. Look how interesting his life is. I don't want to read about him as a young man. Let's let's just get to that one moment. But his life is a million moments that are just as audacious as fixing the World Series. He's a fascinating figure of the jazz age, a compelling figure. What is it about AR that you hope readers will find when they pick up your book? Now they can get it in paperback and enjoy it and apply to how they look at the world in 2019. Well, crime does not pay. <laughs> uh, a spoiler alert. Uh, he comes to a bad end. He is that slow payer and uh, he, he's a slow payer to the wrong ticked off Irishman at the end and gets <laughs> gets plugged <laughs> gets plugged for it he, he won't talk at, at that point but also uh, you know what I was saying earlier about networking where he is the fellow who can go between all these groups because he must have some sort of good people skills on, on one level and also network with the right people and not with the with the wrong people I think it's his wife who made the point that Arnold's associates, his circle of friends really went downhill the longer his life went on, where he started with those intellectuals and newspaper people and writers and the heirs of, of big fortunes in the teens. And he's working with those people. And then at the end of his life, he's working with Legs Diamond and Duck Dutch Schultz and drug addicts and people like that. So he's moving in crummier, darker circles. As he's doing that, his judgment is seriously getting worse and worse. And even with his last girlfriend, there's something about her that seems just floozy-esque. I think I talked to one of her descendants once on the phone. I wish I had kept better notes. But even her family was like, eh, no, 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 not good. Oh, <laughs> well, that's why you have to surround yourself with good people. And that's what makes Rothstein such a compelling book. I thank you for sharing it with me and giving it to me so that I would have the chance to experience it. Because I love, I love a good puzzle. I love planning something i love building things well that's to build it, is a, it is a puzzle and the book won or was a finalist for the uh, edgar award the mystery writers of association i was quite startled to find <laughs> that i'd written a mystery 
but in <laughs> fact, uh, trying to get to the bottom of his his murder, let alone you know getting to what really happened with the with the Black Sox and him, but really untangling his murder was uh, was a mystery and a half. Well, all of that and much more in the book, much more than just the fixing of the World Series. David Petrusha, thank you for coming today and sharing Rothstein with me, introducing me to this man, the complicated man, the man of a million layers, that onion of a man who did fix the World Series 100 years ago in 1919 through the faces of others, keeping his fingerprints off it. Just an amazing feat, amazing criminal mastermind to do that, as you have here, criminal genius. Certainly genius applies. Geniuses aren't always the great kind, aren't always the benevolent kind, the Albert Einstein kind. I guess it takes all kinds to make a world. I hope listeners will pick up the book and meet this man that 1920s America called the big brain. They'll find him just as fascinating as Americans did back in the days of the flappers. Thank you. Again, the book is Rothstein, The Life, Times, and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. By buying books through us, you're helping us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to David Petrusia for joining us and for sharing the story of the man who pulled off the greatest fix in sports history with the whole world watching. Visit him online at dpetrusia on Twitter or davidpetrusia.com. That last name is spelled P-I-E-T-R-U-S-C-A. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.